Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. In the early hours of the morning on the 14th of June 2017, a faulty refrigerator on the fourth floor of Grenfell Tower, situated in the North Kensington area of West London, sparked a fire that quickly grew into an inferno engulfing the whole building. At least 72 people died, though the number may be higher, and 70 more were injured as firefighters attempted to extinguish what was soon to become the deadliest fire in Britain for over a century. But as it transpired in the days and weeks that followed, the fire was no mere tragic, unforeseeable accident. The building had only one stairwell, no sprinklers, and its exterior was encased in a highly flammable cladding material installed as part of a recent refurbishment for no other purpose than to make the tower block more aesthetically pleasing to the borough's affluent onlookers. In short, the fire and the terrible extent of its devastation were the result of a long history of negligence, structural violence and inequality, an embodiment of the contempt with which this country's elite holds racialized and working-class people. But the story of Grenfell is as much about the strength of those who survived and the resistance and solidarity of the local community in their search for accountability and meaningful justice. Last month, Pluto published a new book called After Grenfell, Violence, Resistance and Response. Edited by Dan Bully, Jenny Edkins and Nadine Elanani, the collection features over 20 contributors. And today we're very lucky to be joined in the studio by four of them. Gracie May Bradley, a writer and campaigner interested in critical human rights, state racism and data and surveillance. Monique Charles, an independent researcher writing about black music, music analysis, class, gender and race. Nadine Elanani, senior lecturer at Birkbeck School of Law and co-director of the Centre for Research on Race and Law. And Daniel Renwick, a videographer and writer who made Failed by the State, The Struggle in the Shadow with Grenfell, with Ishmael Francis Murray and Redfish. He's also worked as an advocate and youth worker in the North Kensington community. So I'd like to thank you all for taking the time to come on the show and also to welcome back Gracie, who gets the special honour of being the first ever repeat guest Oi. in this uh, podcast. But before we think about the bigger questions and dynamics at play here, uh, perhaps we can bring some of our non-UK-based listeners up to speed by quickly going over what actually happened on the night of the 14th of June and in the days that immediately followed the fire. Daniel, I think you take this one. Um, I mean, it's very hard to say, really. Uh, around quarter to one, one o'clock in the morning, a fire started. That fire spread to the exterior. The firemen who fought it saw it, but they thought they contained it. It continued to spread. Very quickly, that fire became an inferno. The fire brigade were called, but due to gas works that were taking place at St. Anne's and Bramley Road, there was no vehicular access because of the regeneration and the long-term changes to that estate and essentially a politics of containment. Uh, there was no longer vehicular access where there was once a massive car park and green pitches. And so you had huge amounts of the fire service running towards the fire with very little information and none of their resources. Their information system hadn't located the hydrants. They relied entirely on local knowledge. Uh, they were not able to extinguish the fire. They were not able to get up to the heights that the fire was there. They maintained a stay-put policy for an hour and 40 minutes too long. Uh, those who came out were left on the street for hours and hours and hours. And then when they were seen to, they were coached and then contained and then tried to organise. And there's a brilliant piece today in today's Guardian by Robert Booth that details how Grenfell United came into being. But because of the nature of that event, they were bombarded by the world and used and 
abused uh, and so they had to kind of contain themselves so the community ended up having a kind of community response in the absence of the bereaved and survivors for a long period of time and within that there was so much charitable provisions that came into the area that it was just a gargantuan amount of <laughs> tonnage that they had to deal with and they became logistics managers every radical within the area was holding boxes half the day and we were unable to deal with any of the kind of fallout and then there was just this universe of interlopers who were there, uh, some for good intentions, some are trauma junkies, some literally the kind of handmaidens of <laughs> the shock doctrine. And you're trying to work out all of these things and you're trying to organize. And it was a very, very traumatic couple of months afterwards. And then since then, there has been consistent attempts to kind of unify the community. And we can come together well like on the, on the 14th of June or on the 14th of each month. And we can work together when faced with an adversary, but actually trying to kind of collectivize and really kind of hold the space that we need to to win this thing is proving very difficult. And it's inevitably being disrupted by the forces of state and media and private interests who know that a semblance of justice for Grenfell would be incredibly damaging to the market state and neoliberalism as we currently have it. Hmm. I suppose the fire wouldn't have engulfed the tower at the pace that it did if it wasn't for the cladding on the exterior, which was added um, to the tower during renovations just like a year or so before the fire, I think. Why was it deemed necessary in the first place? I mean, I sort of touched on it in the intro. And why does something that was so highly combustible, basically akin to dousing the building in petrol, get approved? I mean, was there no regulation or was the regulation just that flimsy? Well, the thing is that, I mean, there's a process by which the regulations became as flimsy as they were. It began with Thatcher, it ended with New Labour, and they allowed for what were called desktop studies, so there were no longer any forensic tests for the materials that were put together. And so you had, literally, they were building with petrol. It was the equivalent of 30,000 litres of solidified petrol that once it ignited could not be stopped. On top of that, you had the material of the cladding that was rain-screened, so even when if they could get hydrants to it, they couldn't extinguish the internal blaze. So it was a death trap. Andrew McLaughlin, the most senior fire officer there, said it was, should not be lived in. But, I mean, you have a level at which there is a kind of environmental or economic justification for that cladding as well. It isn't just for, it's for insulation, it's to reduce energy costs, right? That's the main basis that they would justify that. And then it is as part of a redevelopment because they built Kensington Aldridge Academy, a, a secondary academy right at the base of the tower. And the cladding fitted the aesthetic of that building, right? That was the reason that it was applied. And the regulations, they are, there are no regulations, right? We, we see that with what happened in Barking, right? I think that was Class D. Residential homes should have Class A. The thing that happened that led to Grenfell getting clad the way it was was because there was pressures to reduce the costs. And so they actually had zinc cladding that was originally there within the plans. And in an attempt to appease Rockfield and Mellon, and the Guardian reported this, in an attempt to appease Rockfield and Mellon, emails were sent and new providers were found. And that was the cladding, the ACM cladding that was applied. And the thing is that there was a culture of non-compliance within RBKC and Celatex and Arconic knew and targeted that local authority for the sale of deadly cladding that they knew 
should not be applied to tower blocks. So it is a case of very straightforward manslaughter, right? Gross negligence. And there is, I mean, I don't understand at this moment in time. Yesterday, the police announced that there could be no criminal convictions and they're not even going to get to them until 2021. We've had two misreports of that within a week. They are gaslighting us on these points. And the thing is, it's so clearly a crime, right? It's so clearly a crime. And then there's everything that was a part of the fallout. And that fallout is just it's a damning indictment of the political moment we're in. I mean, before we move on to something else, like how extensive is the use of this cladding still in this country? Because it's been found we're, on other buildings. We're talking right? tens of thousands in yeah. regards to that cladding. We're talking hundreds of thousands if you consider things that aren't compliant to an uh, A1 or A2 level. And then you add in the wood. You were talking new builds. There's just a complete lack of regulation, right? And the government have been not only glacial, I mean, they've just, they've muted these calls, right? And not only is there that case, but we also have the fact that a lot of these buildings still operate a state-put policy. So there's literally no lesson that's been learned from Grenfell. The legislation that is coming in isn't retrospective, and barking is a very clear example of its inefficacy. We need something far greater from this state. And the thing is that I don't know what they expect us to do, those who have been affected by this, those who have been politicised by this, those who have been part of this, that we have tried for two years. And Grenfell United have been incredible, right? They have become campaigners when they could have just retreated into trauma. They've come together and they've fought a nationwide struggle to have this thing taken off buildings. And they've done it in an incredibly calm and measured way. And they have met ministers and they haven't done the protest route, they haven't placarded, they haven't done anything that invites criminality and they have been treated with utter contempt because look at the state of this country at this moment in time. We have new builds burning to a cinder and the only reason that we didn't have a loss of life embarking the other day was the time of day it happened. Right? Part of the reason there was such loss of life at Grenfell was that it happened at one in the morning. Now, just think about the amount of people that this is affecting, right? Like, there are kids sleeping in blocks that have seen what's happened in Barking, they've seen what's happened in Grenfell, they're asking their mum, are they safe? Their mum is having to tell them that they are, but they're not, right? That is a, that's a disgusting state of place to be in in this country, and that is the case now for hundreds of thousands of people. And as I said in the chapter, that's just what deregulation has done to fire safety. So we're probably looking at millions that are in a position where their life is incredibly precarious at this moment in time through a callous indifference of state. And that's the very least of it, if there's not just rampant criminality. There's, there's definitely some parallels here between the Grenfell fire and the Windrush scandal in terms of like the racist logic that's at play within the hostile environment and that sort of rubric. I think, Gracie, in your chapter, you talked about state-enabled cruelty. Maybe you could expand on like the links between these two sort of recent scandals or recent events and how it does kind of play into this, what Daniel's just been talking about in terms of this, the state of the country at the moment? That's a big question. Um, and I think it's right that there are parallels. Yesterday I was reading other people's contributions to the book and I was reading Robbie Shilliam's afterward and I was really struck by the way that he talked about locality and the way in which things that are specific can get lost when people jump um, to kind of analyse them and and insert them into ideas that they already had about the world. So I just want to preface what I say with that, um, because I think it's important to recognise that there are parallels, but also there are enormous differences. For me, the, the parallel that I saw, though, 
and I think this happens all the time, is the way in which the state moves to contain the kind of opening that comes after something so terrible, the way in which the state responds with something that's just good enough to make anybody asking for anything genuinely radical or anything that could come close to looking like justice, it makes us look premature, um, it makes us look hysterical, it makes us look silly. And I think that's what you see in, in the public inquiry. It's what you see in the... I mean, it's more blatant with Windrush because the name of the Lessons Learned review is just so euphemistic. But what, what we also saw was an attempt to kind of describe people as not deserving, as if you needed to be deserving of anything, not, not to experience something like Grenfell or something like Windrush. And I was struck by some of the meetings I went to that were discussing Grenfell afterwards. There, you know, there were people who talked about the fact, well, they weren't illegal immigrants. Why was everybody talking about illegal immigrants? And I understand where that came from. You see exactly the same thing happen after Windrush, except after Windrush, it isn't people affected by something who are saying it. It's ostensibly progressive politicians who are doing their level best to to differentiate people affected by Windrush from illegal immigrants. And the conversation that is then very difficult to have is, well, if there are undocumented people who are affected by this, what does justice look like that includes them? And that's the conversation that we've needed to have. But what we've gotten instead, especially on the immigration front, when you look at the so-called amnesty that came after Grenfell and the route to regularization that has come after Windrush, you see processes that are explicitly designed to filter people out, to trip people up. So with the Grenfell amnesty, you see that people are supposed to make three rounds of applications over five years and that they can be excluded on the basis of their character or criminality or associations. And the same with Windrush citizens. And indeed, Sajid Javid went so far as to exclude any Windrush citizen who'd been deported following a criminal conviction from his apology. They simply don't, they don't count. They're not visible. Um, they're not worthy. And of course, what you, it, it's a kind of strategy of attrition because actually if you're making people go through round after round of applications, by the end of five years, who's still watching that was watching just after the fire broke out is very few people and for pe given that so many people so many people already trust the government that's that's something that i see and i'm often surprised by my day-to-day -day work but so many people trust the government and so when the government looks like it's doing just enough people think that's fine that's sorted and that's how you know a year after the windrush scandal we're seeing essentially we saw almost nothing about it yeah, I mean, perhaps at this point, Nadine, maybe we can talk a little bit about what you wrote about in the book, how contemporary Britain is a space of domestic colonialism, um, space of control and exclusion in which racialized populations are sort of disproportionately subject to state violence. We've mentioned like Windrush and so clearly like immigration policy, the government's immigration policy as well. And this all has its kind of origins, I guess, in colonialism, right, British Empire, and then how that's kind of had an impact on a number of spheres domestically, uh, including the kind of the urban environment. But yeah, can you tell us maybe a little bit more about how this idea of domestic colonialism relates to Grenfell? Well, I think for me, watching the horror of what happened as an outside observer whose work and politics has revolved around immigration and racism 
it was clear to me that it was impossible to ignore the fact that the vast majority of those people who were killed in the fire were racialized as well as classed, a lot of them Muslim. And for me, watching that happen in Britain today was exceptional on many levels in the sense the scale and the horror of that violence and that fire was exceptional and seemed like an emergency and something unexpected. But then actually, if we look at Britain's history in terms of its um, imperial colonial history, but also its more recent imperial history with the war in Iraq and the millions of Muslims dead there, it actually seems as just another instance of colonial and racial violence with, of course, very significant class aspect to it too. And for me, my response by sort of initially writing something about this was because, as is customary in academia, particularly neoliberal academia, anything that happens that attracts a lot of media attention becomes something that everybody should try to write about, everybody should try to get a research grant on, everybody should try to understand and analyse very quickly and have the newest and most significant thing to say. And this happened very quickly with a call for papers that was put out um, which ignored race or racialization as a relevant factor in what happened at Grenfell. And I just felt like this couldn't be ignored because the intersection between class and race was so clear um, in terms of what happened at Grenfell to me. And so that was my initial response. And um, and the piece in the book is is kind of expanding on that bit. And I think that in terms of the official response, as Gracie was saying with the public inquiry, it's really wants to ignore um, and has officially ignored race as a relevant concept, which the piece in the book by Patricia Tewitt notes. And and you can see the problem with that when you think that when you look at the documents for the inquiry, they're available in Farsi as well as English, which kind of suggests to you that the survivors and the families and the community that the Grenfell inquiry is supposed to be kind of engaging with um, and for. Um, but at the same time, officially, as is very commonplace with the law, is to ignore um, structural violence and in this case, class and race, racial violence. Um, and so that was kind of where my my piece was trying to look at. And in that sense, I was looking at the way in which we can see colonial violence being replicated in the spatial politics in North Kensington. So you, you have one of the richest areas in the world, but you have some of the poorest conditions in that area. And this seemed to me in particular where, you know, the example of the local council giving a tax rebate of £100, what was it, shortly before the fire to the wealth, to wealthy residents in the area, as if there's nothing to spend that money on as if there's no investment needed in that area that might, you know, improve the lives, let alone save the lives of um, people, was for me this really awful example of how people continue to benefit from structures of inequality which have at their heart kind of imperial um, logics to them. So where you see predominantly white wealthy people continue to benefit, so being given that £100 from administrative structures that kind of negotiate and um, implement through lack of regulation and other forms of regulations kind of violence, whilst at the same time the people in Grenfell Tower, they were ignored when they said that they needed safe homes and changes needed to be made, their voices weren't listened to, they were treated as 
undeserving, that they didn't have a right to be there in the first place, that they should just take what they can get and what they're given and not ask for more. And so it's and, and there's always this there's also this discourse of the unjustly enriched migrant or the the person that doesn't deserve what the, the minimal stuff that they're getting or whatever it is. When actually, if we look at Britain's colonial history, welfare, state infrastructure more broadly was built precisely at the cost of the ancestors of a lot of these people who were then treated as if they didn't belong here and didn't have a right to be here. And and so those structures are still in place and some people continue to benefit from them. And I think that's one thing that I think people find quite uncomfortable is they don't want to acknowledge that these structures that exist in certain um, sections of society and continue to benefit from them. And there's a general desire to ignore the way in which Britain's colonial history continues to structure um, contemporary spaces. And I felt that North Kensington was one of those spaces. Um, I think it definitely, and it's not as simple as that. It's not no, as simple no, but as that I think it definitely, means. I think it definitely is, though, right? So if you take, like, Sivan Anderson's dictum, we are here because you were there, right? Now you apply that to North Kensington. You've got a traveller community just as you come across it, right? So let's put Grenfell in a wider context. Grenfell's in a context of redevelopment. You have Westfield growing day, day by day, and you have the White City development. Now, that White City development is Imperial College, and a huge business district that's already torn apart a historic working class, racialized community in London, right? And the White City Estate was one of the roughest in my in our area. It's notorious, right? So, and they can come and they can make seven hundred thousand pound houses and completely gentrify an area and make it a village. And they, and we saw that coming to North Kent, right? And underneath, to concretize Nadine's point, if you trace the Westway, right, the Westway underneath the Westway, you have everyone who was a colonized subject or a recent migrant through the modern forms of imperialism. So you have Irish traveller, African-Caribbean, and Eritrean, North African, Iranian. You have huge populations there. But then you have the Spanish that were there before. You have the history of the kind of political activism that is there. And within the Westway, when it was first set up, so it dissects North Kensington, right? Grenfell is in very close proximity to that. Now, that in and of itself reduces life expectancy, right? Those pe- those generations who had to live with it being built had the noise pollution, had everything else. And now, this is now a stretch of land that is highly lucrative and is this kind of access point and space by which for the kind of new global space, right? And so you have this kind of new colonialism being meted out against people who have historically suffered and actually at one point had entitlements to that land, a form of a commons being torn from them at this moment in time. And to really trace that through, um, that they still haven't given ground, right? In the area, it's still the cranes are coming closer. It's still known that at long term, that social housing, which, I mean, Nottingdale, we call it that now, but Nottingdale is one of the it's pig farms and potteries. It was always one of the roughest parts of London. When they tried to build the Hippodrome there in the 1800s, the gentry got robbed so many times that they gave up the project after two years, right? It was called Cutthroat Alley. You had loads of, like, radical history within that area. And then you had... and it, But at the time, it was an incredibly white area. It was the bedrock of the 58 riots. And the kind of baying mobs came from that area and into what was the settlements of the African-Caribbean community in Labrador Grove. But that area changed through processes within modern Britain that now means that there's a form of conviviality there that came through struggle and it is being it's not only not respected there are no plaques to it it's 80% social housing at this moment in time with the housing act we're going to see 
like the work I do with young people is about how they're going to stay in that area. Do they feel they belong in that area? I was engaged in a project with Colin Prescott, who is a chair of the Institute of Race Relations and long-term, lifelong North Kensington resident, on a project of belonging, trying to establish with young people whether they feel that that area is theirs. And they are being unpeopled and moved on in exactly a process that can be called a kind of form of internal colonialism, right? And if you listen to the language of Rockfield and Mellon, he said, uh, the village does not dictate the terms to the estate. Right? It's feudal. So these are the, like these are the relations within the area, and the thing is that with with Brentford, it's very rich, right? It's got everything within it because it's such a big indictment of our society that you can find all of the logics in play within it. It's just it requires, I think that's the thing with Robbie's chapter. It requires that kind of meeting of an academic with a kind of grounded space, and that in North Kensington, I think, is something that. I kind of impel academia to do because it's about empowering that community because they are the ones who are going to fight the developers. And when they are standing up at this moment in time, they're being criminalised. Right? So it's a, it's a process that really requires a level of kind of intervention from all of the people who see Grenfell as kind of affirming their points is to kind of make those weapons in the hands of a community that if they don't win this battle, the long-term traumas that are going to fall out of this and then to see a state that doesn't even have that level of contempt but also continues a project of moving you on and unpeopling you, I don't know what they expect the consciousness of those people to be in 20 years' time because I certainly don't think there's anything good that's going to come from that. I'm glad you touched on the, the local community and its kind of history of action and like radicalism and maybe we can bring in Monique here. In your chapter, you talk about the Independent Republic of Estonia, um, the campaign to prevent the sell-off or the, the leasing off, I guess, of the North Kensington Library. And we've seen, obviously, a great sort of organising response in the aftermath of the fire. But perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about the more recent history, I suppose, of people organising in the past, kind of fighting for their land, their homes, that kind of thing. Well... I'm approaching this as, as an academic and what I wanted to do, and I just want to make this clear from the onset, is you were talking about the neoliberalism of academia and you know jumping on things for funding. I wanted to try to use my position to put community voices in the conversation so that they could have an insight. And so when I look at Grenfell and I've spoken to people in the community about it, they've come forward to speak about the long history of struggle, as you've mentioned, along the Westway, which is also known as the A40, I suppose. It was originally going to be a motorway running from central London out west, just in case people aren't sure what the, the Westway is. And um, the area, because it is it's so central, proximity to, I suppose, uh, central London, and the way that that particular borough is, so people based in the north are, well, I suppose it's changing now, are, are more working class. Initially, it wasn't a desirable area. As you said, it was a rough area. So, and you talked about the pig farmers as well. But if we think about Windrush to kind of, I suppose, to try and, and bring that aspect in, it was a slum. It was somewhere where people were just kind of sent to and um, when they came over. To link to your kind of colonial internal colonies it makes me think of Stuart Hall where he talks about areas where people are contained and they are put in these undesirable places so that they can be under scrutiny and surveillance from the state. This uh, I suppose this history of kind of quarantining the working class or uh, the racialized has been 
long-standing in this area, as I've spoken about in the chapter and as Daniel can speak about from a more, I suppose, lived experience. And I'm also mindful when I talk about this, that I am a neighbouring borough, so I'm a Brent resident, but I don't live this. I'm always very mindful. Um, and so there's always been a struggle in the area and the community have come together to fight to ensure that they did have a mile stretch either side of the Westway of the A40 so they could have social housing, so that they could remain in the spaces that they were given. Um, and gentrification obviously slowly has mo moved people out in different waves. I, I I'll use this example, Notting Hill, the movie kind of really helped to kind of spearhead this kind of new desirable part of you know London where uh, new people could start to descend and move in the the systematic movement of people out um, began you, you mentioned North Kent Library right so the the, the North Kensington Library is a that was a concession right there's a concession to circumstance there's Eve Wedderburn one of the key local activists in the Save North Kensington Library campaign Ed Defan the author of the Grenfell Action Group blog, along with Francis O'Connor, right? But the one who wrote the blog that foretold the fire. Uh, he, after Grenfell, I mean, many other people would have gone into the National Enquirer or OK Magazine and taken the title of Nostradamus. Ed didn't. He stayed quiet and then he said, stop the asset stripping and return all of the things that you've got on the auction blocks to the community as reparations for Grenfell. He said, there's no such thing as justice for Grenfell, but you have to stop what you're doing. And the, and, the, and the library was one of those key concessions, right? But it's only been a concession to circumstance. They've signed the thing that's given it to, they've said it for the foreseeable future, it will now be a library, but it's poultry at this moment in time, right? Everything that we've had has been this kind of, it's, it works in a logic of paternalism. It works in a kind of, let's appease them, let's throw a couple scraps down, right? And it's, it's what you said, right? It's do enough to look like you're doing something. And so there were long-term demands within that community, including a space for the African-Caribbean community, right? Who used to have panyards in the area, who used to have the mangrove in the area, who used to have the, the significance of that area in the history of Black Britain is unreal. And there's very little if you walk around those streets that you're going to see of that, right? People just think it's the Notting Hill Carnival, right? We've got a couple of Nubian Jack plaques up in the area, but we've got nothing that tells that story of the psychogeography of that area. And that's empowering to the young people of that area, but there's clearly no will from the political classes to actually foster anything within that space because it was a space of radicalism. In 58, the racists got beat out, Mosley got beat out, the Notting Hill Carnival started. In 76, the police got kicking. And then you had the first law centre of the country come through that space. Uh, I mean, the, the way that you fight modern state racism and the way you fight redevelopment, there's so many of those lessons that are in the architecture of North Kensington and not necessarily in the youth because of what has happened. Right? The processes we're in, the Thatcherism we're in, the deregulation, the untelling, the national curriculum, all of these things mean that a lot of this folklore is missed, right? And so I think it's really important that, that, that academics really kind of excavate this stuff and put it in the hands of people, which I think this book does a really good job of, to be honest. I think there's going to be some level of kind of discussion always within it, but I think that is a really rich area. One thing that the book does, in addition to all of the, the written pieces, there's these kind of photo essays within it as well. There's poetry, there's lyrics, um, and that's all sort of documented in the book as well, this kind of creative expression, which is all sort of very powerful, devastating. There's been a whole host of other mediums as well, kind of video that's come out afterwards. Why, why is this kind of artistic response important? And what role has art and like artists generally, but also within the community itself, played in the aftermath of the fire? 
well, from from the people I've spoken to, art was, I suppose, the alternative way to kind of express, to share, to come together in response, you know, particularly with the Bush Theatre. Obviously, it's a very traumatic experience, but we need space to do creative things. We need space to try and bring happiness back. So it kind of functions as, I don't want to say it's only functions as a, as a method of coping, but it's just a way to express. Um, from some of the things I'd, I'd read as well as people had um, interviewed, it was about being empowered to do something for self as a community to come together, to create something, to tell our story. And I think there's something very humanising through that artistic and creative process. And it's essential, really, especially if we think about I suppose the the type of world we're in now of internet, technology, all that sort of stuff, it became a route or it becomes a route where you can share your story, your narrative, your creative production, whatever that is, to the world, unmitigated. Um, And I think that's really important because given the state, given the media, given academia, all these things, and the way that it had been handled... um, that creative expression was was very powerful, very transformative. A lots of the music that's come out from it, the most well known, I suppose, are Loki's Ghosts of Grenfell one and two, and and even in the lyrics there, it, they were happy that you know Simon Cowell and Stormzy did a charity song. But look, we need to use our voice to say our thing. You know, we need to do this. So it really helped. Um, and if I think about the the projects with the mothers at the theatre as well. They were given, it was a photo project for them to kind of take pictures of what was in and around their area. It was about belonging before the fire took place. But afterwards, it gave the mothers, I suppose, an autonomy or a way to kind of express and share and to come together to speak about things. Um, There were projects as well for young people, for, for children to talk about home, to kind of talk about or express their experiences going forward. Um, so, yeah, the role of art um, and coming together and sharing, it helps to kind of solidify people, or, you know, clusters of people, but it also enables the wider public to actually see and engage direct from the horse's mouth, if, if you want to use that term, which I think is the most powerful and the most important thing. I'm really uh, conscious of talking too much, but I just want to say this. After the fire, right, one of the key things that was done, one of the best acts of community resistance was on the Henry Dickens estate, the community centre had been gentrified and was being leased out, right? They jimmied the lock. First, they put it in there for provisions. And then uh, Susan Rutnick, a art therapy lecturer from Goldsmiths University and local community, lives on the Henry Dickens estate, started art therapy from that space. And it was the most attended provision throughout the post-Grenfell period. And then it started to enter into the communiques of the council. And they've played... The exact game that you said, just doing enough and then pushing it away to the point that that space, which is of great significance and has helped huge amounts of kids, is under threat at this moment in time. So just in terms of a wider solidarity, one of the things that people really could do is to look at the provisions, the art therapy spaces that exist in that area and to make sure that there's pressure applied so that RBKC can't just kill these things off because they're key in any kind of sense of recovery especially the young, the, the young people who've dealt with that art, is that. art is one of the best ways that they can come to terms with their experiences. We've got about five minutes left, so I'm thinking maybe it'd be good to consider now where we are today, where things are two years on. And I think, Danny, you mentioned that there is no justice for Grenfell, but like, what, what is the closest to sort of justice that 
people can hope for. And does it come from this delayed inquiry? Probably not. And in which case, what does that justice look like? I think Dan has to answer that question. I, yeah. Um, I really, at this moment in time, I think that going for United have pushed very hard for us to have regulations and a regulatory body over housing. We've had the Hackett report say that it's come to similar things. Now, Morbeck has pulled out of making these recommendations with his inquiries. So it's incumbent upon our political elites, no matter whether they're conservative or Labour or whatever, there has to be a regulatory body put over housing. There has to be an end to putting anything above A1, A2 regulations on buildings. That's basic, right? That is absolutely basic and it's achievable. And so there's been that push. But in regards to a semblance of justice for Grenfell, I don't like it's a very hard thing to achieve at this moment because it's not just the fire, it's the structural failures before and after, and it's the mental health impacts on hundreds of thousands of people across this country as a consequence of it. So the gravity of this moment really should be taken very seriously, right? It's said that Theresa May saw Grenfell as potentially more damaging to her than Corbyn's resurgence in the polls just a few days before Grenfell Byrne, right? And that she highly politicised the inquiry. The back and forth between her and Morbick shows that. And she had directives put upon government reports that wouldn't mention her within this. Now, this is how seriously Grenfell was taken at that moment for our political elites. It has to maintain that important. We have to make Grenfell, like I, I say in my chapter, right? Grenfell doesn't change anything on its own and to assume death breeds of morality in our political classes is fallacious because they have no bloody heart, right? They don't have the right to wear that green heart. They don't have the right to pose as anything. We have to, and it's everyone across the country, it's everyone who's in a position right now, and it's not just people with colliding on their buildings. It's people who live in high-rises that could collapse. It's the threat of a Ronan point. It's everything that we have within this moment that tells us that our state is no longer fit for purpose and statutory duties aren't being met. I mean, I agree with what Daniel said, and I just think, looking to the law to actually be able to bring any kind of um, structural reform is not something that we can have any kind of hope in. Um, the law is part of the fabric of a society that is structured in a way which makes certain people disproportionately vulnerable to premature death. And we really saw that with what happened at Grenfell. And I think that the kinds of changes we need are all the ones that Dan mentioned as a kind of preventative move because we know that there are people, the very same sections of society that are vulnerable to the same happening again. Um, so there's this preventative move. But then what we also need is to tackle the fact that Britain doesn't recognise how unequal its society is, the fact that it's getting more unequal. What causes that? those levels of inequality, how its imperial history plays into things from Grenfell to Windrush to Brexit, um, what that imperial history was, what British imperialism was, what that meant for people, what that continues to mean for people today. And that's a much bigger project than getting cladding off buildings and ensuring that people can sleep in their houses tonight safely. That to me seems like the minimum. There should have been an immediate move to make sure that nobody went to bed for one night longer than necessary where if something happened again, someone left a cigarette burning or just anything accidental that we could all do in our daily lives couldn't lead to that amount of people 
or anyone losing their life again. Like for me, those immediate preventative things that could have been taken should not even be open to question. It shouldn't be like even an option that those steps aren't taken. The fact that those steps haven't been taken makes me feel that we are further from justice for Grenfell than we could possibly be. The fact that it's on the table that maybe you can still go to bed yet another night two years later um, and not be able to know that your kid is safe um, or that you're safe or that your mother or father are safe going to bed at night. That for me just seems like the minimum that should have been taken care of immediately. The fact that it hasn't is absolutely terrifying. I guess I would just add really briefly. Um, similarly, when you think about the headlines that set out that potentially there were some people who were too frightened to come forward because they had precarious immigration status. Any incident that happens now that requires someone to call the emergency services, that that's still the case. There mm. are still people who are too yeah. scared to do that, who can't come forward. There has been no change in policy in that regard. And I guess what I've been thinking about throughout our discussion is not just the internal colony, but the way in which it's placed, which is something that comes out really strongly in each of your contributions. Because Monique, you talk about a recollection of Loki's, which is of riot police pushing people while the fire is still happening. And Daniel, you also, you talked about armed police being there in the immediate aftermath. And you also talked about the way in which the press had tried to associate the community with terrorism or a terror threat. Um, and so I guess one thing that I wanted to try to bring out in my piece, at the minute right now, there are campaigners, there are people who work on state racism and try to contain it, but people who work on policing are in one place and people who work on counter-terror are in another and people who work on immigration are in another place. But what you see is that, and I think it was Unadine who brought up the fact that Khadija Sai couldn't call for help because she'd been wrongfully arrested and she hadn't had her phone back. I think it's really important that we recognise that those silos, those silos aren't tenable. Mm. Yeah, we're literally out of time. I mean, there's so much that's been left unsaid. I wish we had more time to continue the discussion but um, I'd like to thank you all very much again for coming along. So after Grenfell Violence Resistance and Response is out now uh, it's worth pointing out that all the royalties that are due to the editors will be going to the Grenfell Foundation I think that's right. That's right and 10% of Pluto's profits. That's correct yeah so you can find the book online at plutobooks.com as well as in all good bookshops everyone should go and read it and take action as well um, in the coming days and weeks as Grenfell becomes newsworthy once again. But thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Radicals in Conversation and we'll be back next month. Mm -hmm.